Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. <clears throat> As we continue our study on the fathers of our, of our faith, the patriarchs, um, we are learning about how to live by faith in the promises of God. Faith, of course, is the foundation of our relationship with God. Uh, faith is indispensable when we first come to God for salvation. The Bible says we are saved uh, by grace through faith. But faith isn't a one-time deal. In other words, it's not like, oh, okay, I need faith to be saved, and, and after I'm saved, faith isn't a big deal anymore. No. Uh, faith will also be a part of you continuing forward in your relationship with God. You are saved by faith, and you will, moving forward, walk by faith. Indeed, faith in the promises of God is the foundation, it's the, the fuel that propels you forward in obedience in your walk with God. And, and we learned something of that last week from Abram in the first half of Genesis 12. Uh, we saw that Abram's faith in God's glorious promises to make him into a great nation and, and, and give him offspring, even though his wife was infertile. We, uh, we saw these promises that God made to give his family the land of Canaan, even though it was presently occupied by the enemies of God. And, and we saw these promises of how uh, Abram, uh, through Abram, uh, blessing would come to the whole world, even though Abram had no idea how that might unfold. And in response to those wonderful promises, Abram moved forward in faith, leaving everything that he knew behind and going to the land of Canaan. Now, this week, we're going to learn from Abram again. This time, we're going to learn not from his faith, but from his failure. If faith fuels our obedience to God, then when we disobey God, you can be sure that at the root of, of disobedience is unbelief. And unbelief will open up the door to frustration, fear, misdirection, anxiety. It'll stunt your spiritual growth. It'll rob you of your peace and joy in Christ. It'll keep you in captivity to sin. Indeed, unbelief is sin. And as we learn from Abram, I think we're going to learn something about ourselves that I hope will be helpful. But in addition, and most importantly, we're going to learn something about God and how God responds to our faltering faith. And and I think you'll find that to be very, very encouraging. So let's see what we can learn together. Uh, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The, the book of Genesis often gets mocked and ridiculed and, and scorned by, by unbelievers, often seen by some to be just uh, strange stories and, and fairy tales, but, but this is history. It is the very Word of God, and Moses writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're in Genesis 12, and we're starting at verse 10, and we'll read through the end of the chapter and into the first few verses of uh, chapter 13 as well. Word of God says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Uh, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, and they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. 
And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this as you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize this morning that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. There is nothing more important to be said than what your word says to us right now. And so I pray that we would have ears to hear and open hearts and open minds to listen, to receive, and to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So our text last week ended on a great note. After stepping out in faith and and leaving Ur of the Chaldeans behind, traveling hundreds of miles to the land that God promised him, Abram in verse 6 of chapter 12 arrives in Canaan at the Oak of Moray, which is a pagan shrine to a false Canaanite god. And we're told in verse 7 that the first thing that he does when he gets there is he builds an altar to the Lord, publicly rejecting the gods of Canaan. And in verse 8, he repeats the pattern. He moves to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitches his tent. And there, too, he builds an altar to the Lord, calling on his name. And in verse 9, it says, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. He's going from place to place in Canaan. He's pitching tents and building altars, and he's proclaiming the name of the Lord wherever he goes. And so this section ends on a very triumphal note, doesn't it? Uh, Verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 12 is just one big, awesome, mountaintop experience, and Abram exercises big-time, high-flying faith. But suddenly, that high-flying faith crashes and burns. What happened? Well, what started it all was a trial of faith, a trial of faith, the triumphal march of Abram in verse 9 runs into an apparent brick wall in verse 10. uh, We are told there was a famine in the land, and suddenly without warning, the mountaintop experience gives way to a valley. Now, if you live close to the ground, like Abram and the folks of the ancient Near East, uh, famine is a big deal. It's a life-threatening situation. Uh, There weren't grocery stores with shelves upon shelves full of food. There there wasn't uh, Amazon Prime where you could order foods and goods from halfway across the world. It didn't work that way. This is a big deal. And so the mountaintop experience of Abram suddenly descends now into a dark valley. It's a serious trial. Now, we aren't told the details of how Abram felt, but if he is like many of us, this would have been somewhat jarring and, and, and quite disappointing. You mean, I have to, I, I, I leave the, the fertile, lush, abundant Mesopotamian region, I leave that behind to inherit a new land, and this is what I get? Really? 
Did, did I miss out on something here? You know, if you skim some of the, the popular Christian books over the past decade or so, you'd be left with the impression that if you're following God, and if you're doing the right thing, and, and, and if you have enough faith, it should be smooth sailing and blue skies. If you have the favor of God in your life, it should just be one glorious, victorious mountaintop experience after another. How many of you know that's not true? And, and if, if you don't realize that yet, just be a Christian for a few more days, and, and, you'll, and you'll see. And sometimes, though, we, we wrongly see the difficulty in our lives as a sign that we're on the wrong track. Uh, maybe we're doing something wrong, or, or maybe God is, is punishing us, or He's against us, and there's an assumption then that if we just change course and figure out what's right and, and do that, then things are going to get easier. Now, I grant you that sometimes we do indeed do something wrong, and the consequences of that uh, boomerang back onto us, and we bring difficulty on our own heads. That does happen. But many times, that's not the case. Uh, consider that Abram, he was doing the right thing. He was walking by faith. He was living in the land that God told him to live in. He's been doing exactly what he should be doing, and life doesn't get easier. It gets harder. A famine comes. Very often in the life of a believer, faith is followed by famine, by a trial, by testing. Some of you know what that's like where you have uh, followed God in obedience, you've stepped out in faith only to find yourself in a desert place right after that. And here's what you need to know. And for some of you, this may be revolutionary. If you are a child of God, the entrance of the trial in your life is not a sign that God is against you. It's actually the exact opposite. And this is why... James can tell us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You think about this, how, how, how else could Abram become the great man of faith that he was? Right? We admire Abram because of his faith. Uh, we admire the Abram of Genesis 22, who had so much faith in that chapter that he was willing to offer up his own son just because God told him to. But friends, he didn't get there overnight. Uh, to get to Genesis 22, Abram had to go through Genesis 12 and 13 and 14, and 15, and 16, and decades of learning faith and trusting in God through adversity, through ups and downs, and through successes, and even through failures. So whatever you are going through right now, know that the purpose of that trial is not to tear you down and destroy you, but to build you up. It does not mean that God is against you. Instead, the trial is designed by God to pave the way for greater glory later on, which is why Peter writes, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the, testing, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Abram now experiences a trial of faith. 
And in that moment, the choice he faces is exactly the choice that we face in moments of testing. Will we respond with faith or with fear? And sadly, the faith that Abram initially had descends now into fear. So we see a fearful response. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, Abram's flight to Egypt is understandable. Uh, Due to the Nile River, Egypt was often lush and and abundant with food uh, uh, when surrounding regions were not. Nile would often overflow and just water the land all around. Uh, and, 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 and so, folks in other regions would depend on Egypt during hard times. That's what many folks in Canaan did. And so, going to Egypt was the most natural response in the world. And that's the problem. Yes, Abram was acting naturally. He was acting logically. He was acting in a way that everyone else would deem sensible but he was also acting out of unbelief. He is fearful for his life, and this fear is undermining his faith in the promises of God. Consider the immediate context of this story. Where God called Abram to? He called him to Canaan, not to Egypt. He belongs in Canaan. At the command of the Lord, he goes to Canaan. But now he seems to make his decision without any reference to God's will. In verse 10, we see Abram on the move again, but this time there is no command from the Lord. In the previous story that we read last week, we see Abram's life marked by prayer, calling on the name of the Lord, building altars. We see nothing of prayer from Abram this time, no construction of altars on his trek to Egypt. So not only is God not talking to him, he's not talking to God. Now what's more, we should consider the larger context of this book of Genesis and remember the original audience that Genesis was written to. It was written to Abram's descendants. It was written to the children of Israel. And the Israelites, hearing about the story of Abram, would have, upon hearing the name of Egypt, had warning bells and alarms going off in their minds. Because Israel had just come up from Egypt, and guess where they were headed? To Canaan. The reverse direction that Abram is taking. Uh, Those original promises God made to Abram were about to find fulfillment as Israel was about to go into Canaan and take possession of the land. And if you're familiar with the story of Israel and their journey to the promised land, what did Egypt represent to Israel? Yes, it was a place where they were formerly slaves, but it was also their greatest temptation. It was always the place Israel was tempted to return to whenever things got rough. Uh, During their times of famine, lacking food, lacking water, they always had this pull to give up God's call to Canaan and turn back to Egypt for survival. Sure, we were slaves in Egypt, but you know what? We ate good. Uh, There was meat and there was vegetables, and there was spices. Oh, how good Egypt sounds right now. That was where security and safety is to be found. Better to go to Egypt where I can at least see the provision, even if it means going in the opposite direction God wants me to go. Better that than to walk by faith in God in a situation where I can't see everything that I think that I should see to make me feel better and safe, where all I have is God and His Word, that's not enough. I'd rather walk by sight than by faith. 
Now, Egypt is often seen this way throughout the Bible as a, as a symbol of worldly safety and security and human strength apart from trusting in God for safety. Uh, centuries after Abram, the prophet Isaiah writes, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Here's the issue with Abram. He's being very logical. He's being very pragmatic. He's doing what makes sense. But as one commentator puts it, Abram takes everything into consideration except God. He's leaving God and His promises and His Word out of the equation. Uh, His view of the circumstances and His response to them is not being informed by the character and the Word and the promises of God. Otherwise, he would not have panicked and felt the need to abandon the land that God had called him to. The problem is that while Abram is quite willing to accept what God said regarding the big plan that God, for his, uh, God had for his life, like, like I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you, that sounds really good. Uh, he was prepared to receive that. But where he struggles is trusting God with the nitty-gritty, concrete, everyday details of life. Like, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? How's my family going to be provided for? Where are we going to live later on in a few chapters? It's it's going to be how are we going to have this baby that God promised because my wife is still infertile? And so on. Abram has a hard time connecting the big, grand, sweeping promises of his life with how that might affect and and translate into the day-to-day working out uh, of the details of his life. Abram should have realized that if God can take care of the big stuff, if he's going to fulfill these big things over here, then surely he should trust God to provide for him and everything else over here. But his fear drives him to seek to care for himself in his way, even if it means setting aside what God says in his word, even if it means disobeying God's call for him to be in Canaan. Now, our problem is often the same as Abram's, right? We trust God with the big stuff. We trust Him with the biggest thing possible, our salvation. Uh, We we believe that God is big enough to rescue us from hell and get us to heaven, uh, that He's called us to be children of God. We trust in Him uh, with those things, and yet we get anxious about the daily details of our lives. Uh, We worry about our lives, and, and we don't believe God will give us what we need, and so what do we do? we panic. This is precisely why Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious about your life, Uh, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. God feeds the birds, he'll feed you. Uh, God clothes the lilies, guess what? He'll clothe you. Oh, you of little faith, Uh, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Uh, Jesus connects that anxiety uh, about God not providing, he connects that with a lack of faith. Friends, God knows what you need Uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally. He knows all of those things. The psalmist says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. But we don't always believe that. And so we do fear. And it is in those moments that we will take refuge in other things outside of God and His promises. For us, going down to Egypt 
uh, may mean taking comfort and security not in God's promises, but in our own strength and wit and wisdom to fix whatever problem that we're in. Uh, trusting in Egypt means, that, means when we have on the one side living by faith in God's word and God's promises, and on the other side we have living according to what is pragmatic, expedient, and what works, and what offers me the quickest relief, we ditch God's word and we choose expediency. Uh, trusting in Egypt could be finding refuge and comfort in a secret sin that we think will help us to cope through the stress of a trial. Could be relying on other people more than God to give you whatever you think you need. Maybe an idolatrous relationship. Or maybe it's throwing yourself into the accumulation of money and possessions to give yourself a a sense of safety and security. Could be a whole host of things. But whatever it is, trusting in Egypt never works out in the long run. Egypt always promises much, but never truly delivers in the end. And Abram is about to find that out. And as he and Sarai are traveling to Egypt, he probably feels pretty relieved, at least for a little while. This is going to work out. Egypt will solve my problems. Uh, If he's like you and me, he may even have found a way to justify his disobedience. Hey, this is going to keep me alive, and that'll keep those promises of God alive. This actually helps God out. Isn't God lucky to have me on his team? But as he gets closer and closer to Egypt... And as he sees those pyramids in the distance, he suddenly finds something else to get fearful about. And this often happens when we're walking in fear and not in faith, just kind of fear feeds more fear. And he gets afraid about something else, and that's the fact that his wife is drop-dead gorgeous. And this is problematic. And so as they're about to enter Egypt... He says to Sarai in verse 11, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, Abram just should have stopped right there and went no further. He should have quit while he was ahead. But his intent here is not merely to praise his wife. It's the setup for a punchline that I don't think Sarah's going to love. Now, you husbands, if if you have something hard to tell your wife... I'll let you weigh whether or not you should follow Abram's approach in your playbook. Hey, honey, you're beautiful. Now, here's something else I need to talk to you about. My advice is that you just compliment her beauty and then just shut up and stop there. And then that'll be, you'll win then. Abram doesn't stop there. After his very awesome setup, I know you're a beautiful woman, he then projects into the future what that means for him. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. You see, this isn't really about Sarai. He envisions what's going to happen. He envisions them going into Egypt and and, and people looking at them, and they're like, whoa, look at at her. And 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 she's married to that? He knows that she's ridiculously attractive, and he can see how this is all going to go down. Well, Abram has a solution for the problem. Verse 11, say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, again, 
Abram could have easily rationalized and spiritualized this course of action, I suppose. Hey, hey, God gave me all these promises. I'm in a potentially dangerous situation. I need to stay alive so these promises can come true. So, Sarah, I want you to lie about our relationship so that it may go well with me. What's really important is that I live. I mean, I, mean, I think God has a plan for you and all this too, Sarah, but uh, yeah, I, I know I'm important, right? Now, Abram's scheme is actually pretty clever when you understand the, the culture of the ancient Near East. Uh, there was a practice known as a fratriarchy, uh, brother rule. Uh, basically, the idea is that if a girl's father dies, the brother assumes the role of the guardian and is responsible for uh, marriage arrangements for the girl. And so any smitten suitor who wants to marry her has to negotiate now with the brother. And they would have to spend time negotiating the details of the bride price and, and all those sorts of things. And, and I think Abram probably expects that multiple men are really going to fall for Sarah. They're going to be crushing on her hard. And they're going to come coming. They're going to come calling. And, and, so, and now Abram can just draw out the negotiations. Uh, maybe make the bride price too high or something like that. And he, he can draw this out for weeks and for months, if need be, to buy them time to escape back to Canaan if necessary. Now, this clever deception is pretty impressive on one level. Abram is a very shrewd and and calculating kind of guy, but there's a problem, and I'm not simply talking about the ethics of his deception, and yes, that is bad. That is a problem, but the deception is a symptom of a much deeper problem in Abram's heart. Because Abram is, again, trusting in his own cleverness and his own strength and his own resources. He's going about this in a way that makes sense to the world. But he's operating, again, out of unbelief in the promises of God. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis 12 and you consider the various promises that God made to Abram, you'll see promises of land, of offspring, of blessing, but also embedded in those promises is a promise of divine protection. Look at verse 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. You know what that is? That's a protection clause. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty strong protection clause. If people treat you well, Abram, I'm going to treat them well. But if someone as much as dishonors you, they look at you sideways. They're going to have to deal with me. I'll take care of them. Anyone who's messing with you is messing with me. Uh, That's a promise of safety. That's a promise of security. So Abram need not fear men. Oh, how the fear of man is such a huge problem with Christians. Uh, We may not fear someone's trying to kill us, but we fear people all the time, don't we? In different ways. Uh, We fear others won't approve of us. We fear people will look down on us. We fear people will reject us, uh, will be displeased with us. Uh, We we fear people will give us a hard time and make life unpleasant for us in some way. We fear bosses. We fear neighbors. We fear people in the church. We fear relatives. and, uh, And the fear of man will drive us into all kinds of sin. And we, like Abram, may descend into deception so that the people that we fear are nice to us. Uh, We may avoid loving people who are hard to love because interacting with them can cause unpleasant blowback. Uh, We'll join in gossip uh, because we want others to accept us. Uh, We'll refrain from evangelism because we don't want to be rejected. We're afraid. What do you do when you're afraid? 
When fear of man threatens to take over, is it your instinct to run to the promises of God and find strength and hope and security in them? Or is your first instinct to try to manipulate the situation, to try to manipulate or or hide from the people that you're afraid of? The psalmist says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Notice that part of his trust in God is a word, is, is, is hope in God's word. He says, in God whose word I praise, our response to fear needs to be a trust in his word. Elsewhere, the psalmist says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Hope is found in God's word. Hope is found in God's promises. We're not to find hope in our strength and our schemes to get us out of the trial. His word gives us the wisdom to know how to respond to trials the right way. His word gives us strength and courage to make it through them. And all this should underscore the priority that God's Word should have in your life. Uh, We won't be able to to, to draw on the promises of His Word if we don't read His Word, if we don't regularly feed on His Word. Every day we should be opening up this book because we are a forgetful people, are we not? Abram has forgotten God's Word. He's forgotten promises of, of blessing, and he's forgotten promises of, of protection. He's, he's left the land that was promised to him, and now, and now he forgets, disbelieves God's promise to, to preserve his life. And so Abram foolishly tries to handle things his own way, and it totally backfires. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So, so, so far now, uh, things are unfolding as Abram predicted. And everyone is noticing this incredibly gorgeous knockout wife. But then something happens that he doesn't count on, which goes to show you that no matter how clever you are, you cannot foresee every contingency. Again, this is why you need to trust in the wisdom of God and not your own. It says in verse 15, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. You see, Abram forgot there was one man in the nation who did not need to negotiate with anybody about anything. Uh, The king of Egypt. Whatever Pharaoh wants, Pharaoh takes. There are no negotiations. And just like that, Pharaoh sends his men to Abram's tent and escorts his wife away and adds Sarai to his harem. And so Abram's plan totally blows up in his face. What's more... Uh, The promises of God are more in jeopardy than ever. Uh, Through the offspring of Abram and Sarai, the nations of the world are to be blessed. But how's that going to happen if Sarai now is taken into the household of Pharaoh? Everything that Abram has tried to do to help God has made things worse. And so you can imagine the consternation that Abram was in. Who knows what was going on in Pharaoh's chambers? As one commentator puts it, Sarai, so beautiful, would surely become one of Pharaoh's favorite entertainments. And from from then on, life would have taken its natural course. She, She well could have lived and died in Egypt, had her place in a royal tomb, and her excavated mummy would be grinning up at us in the British Museum. Good job, Abram. 
You see, sin tends to snowball, doesn't it? Sin always takes us further than we want to go. Uh, the price is always higher than what we thought we were going to pay in the, in the beginning. It all started with this fear of famine and the seemingly sensible decision to go to Egypt. But that lack of faith led to more fear in Egypt, which led to his foolish lies and deception, which led to the abduction of Sarai. Abram tried to control everything apart from God's Word, but he ends up losing control. He tries to handle his circumstances, and his circumstances end up handling him. And in the end, Abram ended up sinning against God, against his wife, even against Pharaoh, whom he has deceived. Oh, if we would, during our trials and difficulty, if we would just listen to God's Word. How much unnecessary pain to ourselves and others could be spared if we would just trust God's wisdom above our own. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Apart from what God says, we get ourselves into trouble every time when we do that, and every time we do that. And we're surprised why things are as they are. It's because Deemer Webb's an idiot. And everybody said, amen. And now the walls just continue to close in on Abram in verse 16. Uh, And for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Uh, Pharaoh has Sarai, and he wants to compensate her brother for the loss. And man, is he generous. He's going all out. He's sending Abram all of this stuff. Every day, the UPS man is coming to the door with another package from Pharaoh. Every day, it's more sheep and more oxen and servants and flat-screen TVs and the latest iPhones and more. Uh, Notice among the gifts are female donkeys. Uh, Female donkeys were easier to control and offered a smoother ride. They were were luxury transportation for the rich. It's like getting delivered a fleet of Mercedes-Benz. The camels were a rare kind of luxury in those days. It would have been like the highest ends of sports cars. And Abram now has a garage full of them. It's insane. And with each delivery of a a grand and over-the-top gift, can you imagine, it's like a stab. And Abram's heart. Here's another camel. Here's another TV. It's insane. Meanwhile, Sarai is trapped in a prison. You can imagine how she feels about the situation. She's in the most luxurious prison ever. But it is a prison nonetheless. And, And folks, at this point, it seems hopeless. If Abram comes clean with the truth, what do you think is going to happen? Who knows how angry Pharaoh will react if Abram storms the palace to rescue his wife? He won't make it past the front gates before getting shot with arrows. Abram is at the end of his strength. He's at the end of his resources. He's at the end of his cleverness, at the end of his ability. And sometimes, friends, it is only when we're at the very end of ourselves that we are finally ready to see wisdom and to be reminded of who is ultimately in control and who we should be 
have been seeking all along. And so after the trial of faith and after the fearful response, we now see the faithful God. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Finally, after Abram has tried in vain to solve everything, the Lord steps in. Uh, apparently, it was going to take something serious to make Pharaoh let Sarai go. Does that sound familiar? Now, again, think about Moses' original audience. Uh, to those Israelites who were about to enter the promised land, they would have read verse 17 with a nod of remembrance because they themselves were once held hostage in Egypt, and only through mighty plagues were they released. God has rescued, and, and God had rescued Israel to keep his covenant promises. And now we see he is rescuing Abram and Sarai for the same reason. Somehow, Pharaoh puts two and two together. We don't know how he figures this out. Uh, perhaps, as the plagues are affecting everyone else, they aren't affecting Sarai. Uh, we know that's what happens later on in the book of Exodus, right? The, the Israelites are, are spared, and the Egyptians are getting hit hard big time. Maybe as everyone else is bedridden with these plagues, Pharaoh calls in Sarai and says, does this have anything to do with you and your brother? And Sarai rolls her eyes and says, my brother. Uh, we don't know how he found out, but he does. Verse 18, uh, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now here, here is your wife. Take her and go. And don't let the door hit you on the way out. And what's interesting is that Pharaoh comes off here as more moral than Abram. Pharaoh is appalled by Abram's behavior. He's disgusted by it. And the implication here uh, is that if Abram would just have told the truth, none of this would have happened. Here, and here we have a pagan, idol-worshiping king rebuking the man of God. How shameful it is when we, as God's people, behave in such a way where we could find ourselves rightly judged by the world. Verse 20, And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and he sent him away with his wife and all that he had. At this point, Pharaoh is eager to get rid of these troublemakers as soon as possible. He's, just, he's deporting them. He's kicking them out. He says, take her and go. And he doesn't even ask for his stuff back. He just wants them out. Uh, very reminiscent, again, of what will happen later on in the book of Exodus, uh, when after the plagues, a different Pharaoh uh, drives Israel out of Egypt, and Israel leaves with great possessions. Some people wonder if Sarai escaped Pharaoh's household undefiled, and the text does not tell us, which kind of builds the whole tension here. Uh, some think that it would have taken time for her to come before the monarch, kind of like in the book of Esther, where it took 12 months of preparation and beautification <clears throat> before, before Esther would appear before the king. Maybe it was something like that. Uh, commentator Alan Ross suggests that Pharaoh's words, here is your wife, seems to point to the fact that she was returned unharmed. We don't know for sure. I have a feeling God rescued her just in time, but... But again, we don't know. 
What Abram could not do, though, God does. He, he rescues both of them from this situation. And even so, this would have been a sad and sh- shameful and painful experience for both Abram and Sarai as they find themselves kicked out of Egypt and heading back to the very location where they should have been in the first place. That's, that's why I read verse 1 to you of chapter 13. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with, went with him into the Negev. If you're paying close attention, that's like a, they went full circle. That's exactly where this whole thing began. They were in the Negev, and now they're back in the Negev. It's like God through providence is saying, no, 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 <laughs> you're not supposed to be there, you're supposed to be here. I'm putting you back where you began. What is encouraging is that in verse 4 of chapter 13, it says that when he gets back there, he makes an altar, um, or he gets back to where his altar was. It seems to suggest that he's back to a place of, of worship and, and belief. <clears throat> but as, as we begin to bring this sermon in for a landing, what, what's the big overarching takeaway that we're supposed to get from this story? Is it that we need to trust God's Word more than ourselves? Yeah, I think that is definitely one of the takeaways, uh, but that's not the main point. Another takeaway is, is, as I heard someone once put it, we need to look at our circumstances through God instead of looking at God through our circumstances. How right that is. Uh, if only Abram, if, if only we would evaluate every circumstance, every situation, every trial through, through God as opposed to the other way around, we'd be so much better off. That's a takeaway, but that's not the main point. Here's the main point. Why did God rescue Abram and Sarai? Was it because Abram was such a great spiritual giant? Was it because he was awesome? Was it because, was it because Abram was obedient and had great faith? You know the answer. Absolutely not. When Abram is faithless, God remains faithful. God keeps his promises every time. That's the point. Abram completely bungled everything. And all of the promises were in jeopardy. But God would not be deterred. Uh, Neither Abram's failure in sin nor Pharaoh's power and might could thwart God from accomplishing his purposes. That's what the children of Israel needed to hear 400 years after this event. As As they're hearing this read to them for the first time by Moses, as they're getting ready to march into Canaan to fight some of the most fearsome warriors ever, they needed, to be, they needed to be reminded that God was committed to them. God would not fail them. They needed to hear that. God's going to keep his promises even through weak people. That's what they needed to hear, and that's what you need to hear right now. God rescued Abram and Sarai out of Egypt not just for their sakes, but for yours. God saved Abram's life, and God got Sarai out of that harem and brought them back together for your good. Because through their union comes the children of Israel, and through the children of Israel comes the Christ. And Jesus Christ, 
the favored one of God, after his mountaintop experience, was immediately sent into the wilderness by God to experience a great trial of faith. A 40-day famine in the desert with no food, no water. And the devil comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And unlike Abram, and unlike Israel, Jesus turns to the tempter and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus trusts in the provision of God. And, and as our substitute, he lived the life of perfect faith that you and I failed to live. And as our substitute, he dies on the cross, the death that you and I deserve to die, experiencing God's wrath meant for faithless ones like like us. And he was raised to newness of life for us, so that whosoever turns away from trusting in their own strength, in their own cleverness, in their own resources, in their own righteousness, whosoever turns away from that and turns to the Lord and calls on his name will be saved from God's judgment. Now, most of you here this morning have already done that. You're already Christians, and yet you know that you are far from perfect. Maybe you can identify with Abram. Uh, Maybe this morning uh, you're picking yourself up off the ground after an epic spiritual failure. Christian brother, Christian sister, the message of Genesis 12 is that God is committed to you. You may have felt like you were losing your grip on God, but guess what? Uh, The strength of his grip is tighter than yours. He will not let you go. Uh, You may be convicted and crushed in spirit because of how you failed God, but, but beloved, We have seen from our passage great news for great failures, beautifully summarized by the Apostle Paul, who says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And so for that reason, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You're going to make it. God's got this, and God's got you. And no trial, no sin, no other power will destroy you. You will persevere. You will make it to the end. So have hope and be encouraged. And may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this last part. He who calls you is faithful. He's faithful. And guess what? He will surely do it. Let's pray.